0: Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life, and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Is anybody else in a good mood like I am this morning? Sun is shining. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I am so excited to be here. Um, and Olivia already mentioned this, but I just want to echo. Um, thank you so much for the way that you have been helping us prepare that space. Uh, one of the things that's been really cool is that so many different people have been contributing in different ways. And so, several weeks ago, we did a, a workday over there, and it was one group of people. And then yesterday, it was a whole different group of people. And it's just really cool to see people contributing in, in all kinds of different ways to really bring that space alive, because we believe it is going to help us um, help us reach out into our community in ways that we haven't yet before. In fact, there was a—I'll just tell this story really quick, and then I'll get to it with my sermon. But uh, there was a local business owner walking by yesterday as we were working, and he's just like, "What? What kind of?" He saw the dumpster. He's like, "What are you doing?" over there. And I was like, well, we're opening this community hygiene store uh, where people can come and get hygiene products, and um, we really want to serve families and youth through that space over there. And he goes, as soon as you're ready for business partnerships, let me know. I want to in on that. I want to be part of that. And so, yeah, that's really... That's just a testament to the fact that we are building this thing with our community, and I'm just so grateful for the way that God is moving uh, through you and through our church um, through this new ministry that we're starting. So uh, that has nothing to do with my sermon, other than the fact to just say thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus. I guess which kind of has to do with my sermon, but whatever. We'll get we'll get started here. Uh, so we're in uh, we're in week two of our series for people, um, where we are reclaiming as a church what it means to be four people in 2021 in the way that Jesus was for people uh, when he was doing his ministry here on earth. And so I want to take you back to the year 2006. I was on my senior class trip for high school. You can do the math on how old that makes me. And uh, so we were going to... Yeah, it's young. I'm still young. Spoiler (laughs) alert. Uh, (laughs) We were going to Colorado, uh, Westcliff, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful area if you've ever been to Colorado before. Huge mountains, lots of 14,000-foot-plus mountains, just gorgeous. And one of the biggest parts of this trip was that you would climb the mountain at this resort we were staying at called Horn Peak. So as a group of high schoolers, there was three of us, four of us in our group, um, getting ready to climb this mountain midway through the trip. And so we got all our stuff ready. We're ready to go. And uh, you can see this picture here. That is baby Brad on the left there. Uh, Oz probably not the right reaction to that. those are the faces of some guys who do not ready look ready for a hike ahead of them. Very innocent. What? Looks more like and yeah, looks more like search and rescue. Very innocent, very happy. This was the very beginning of the hike before we embarked on this treacherous journey ahead of us. Spoiler alert, we got very lost on this hike. Very lost, yeah, Steve called it. Uh, we got so lost to the point where like... Almost a whole day, like way later in the day, we started early in the morning, way later in the day, they had to send in a search and rescue party <laughs> to find us. And if you know me, this is surprising to absolutely no one here that this happened. And I've got to be honest, it made me kind of feel good to be, like, needed and wanted and pursued in that way. Uh, but they sent in the search and rescue party, and as I was, like, thinking about this idea of search and rescue, I began just to, like, research, like, how many cases of search and rescue are there? Like, how many does the National Parks Association report? There are a lot. In a 15-year period, they reported over 65,000 cases of search and rescue in national parks. That's over 15 years. And they studied, why do people get lost? And there are a whole host of reasons why people get lost. Things from miscounting your paces and your steps to taking game trails and mistaking those for hiking trails. Ego is a big reason, like men refusing to ask directions on the, <laughs> on the journey. That's another big one. There are so many reasons why people get lost. And you don't want to know what the average cost of a search and rescue operation is per day, like a full-scale search and rescue operation. The average cost is $32,000 a day. I'm worth $32,000 of your taxpayer money. You're welcome. Yeah, Colorado. Well, it's National Park, so I don't, I don't know how all that works. Um, but this made me think of the question, how much, how much is a lost person worth? How much is the life of a lost person worth? Because search and rescue always comes at a cost. Search and rescue always costs something. How much is that cost worth? How much is too high for the pursuit of a lost person? And I think this question gets even more real when we add this tag at the end there. How much is a lost person worth to God? We're going to dig deep into that question this week. In fact, this sermon is a two-part sermon, so you'll have to come back next week. Because we're going to really dive deep into this story. Because I want us to have the heart of the Father towards lost people as a church. And so today we're going to look at one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told in his entire ministry. If you've been around the church for any period of time, I've taught on this. You've probably heard sermons on this. uh, But we're going to dive deep into this. And I think you're going to learn some new things about this story uh, this week and next. So be sure to come back next week. But last week I said Jesus' ministry was one of doing and teaching, right? So Acts 1 describes it this way. He, he had a ministry of doing and teaching. So what Jesus would do is he would often teach by just demonstrating in the way he lived, who he surrounded himself with, what he did. And then in many cases, that was so scandalous and controversial in his day that he actually had to bring real actual teaching to what he was doing that was stirring up so much controversy. This story is one of those cases. Right? So night after night, he is sharing a table with some of the uh, lowliest of people in the society, prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles and all these different kinds of people that church people didn't like all that much. And so they began questioning him because this was stirring up so much controversy. Who is this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them is the question that spurred the story Jesus is about to tell that we're going to look at this morning. But I believe this story that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is illustrating two things. The first one is he's going to show us how much a lost person is worth to God. And the second thing that I think he's going to show us is that there is more than one way to get lost. And church people can be some of the most lost people there are. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to dive into this story that Jesus tells together. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered... Uh, his property in reckless living. So when Jesus tells a story, this request from a younger son would have elicited all kinds of gas from his crowd. This younger son did what? This is an absurd, unheard of request from a son to his father. Give me my share of the inheritance. If you've heard this story talked about before, it's The equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's a death wish on his father, saying, you are dead to me. You mean nothing to me. And if a Jewish boy ever did this to his father, oh, he'd be in for a whooping. That's a mild way of putting it. In fact, most fathers in this day and age, if, uh, if their son came to them and said, Hey, I, w- I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the property of the money. That's all you're good for to me. Most fathers would drive their son out with blows and curses, saying, I never want to see you again. Get out of here. How dare you? But that's not what this father does. He actually gives his son the share of the inheritance. And to do this would have come at great cost to a a property owner in this day. Because the only way for a father to give his son his share of the inheritance would be to liquefy all of his assets. Sell what he had, literally tear his life apart for the sake of this selfish son. This would have brought shame on the father's name. This would have, like think about the whispers in the town. Right? Look at what that guy did. He, he's not worth much anymore because he, he just did something so stupid for his selfish son. This probably meant servants got fired and lost their jobs as a result of this. This son's request is not just an individual request. There are ripples that impact his whole community by making this request. Now put yourself in the position of a brother or a sister of this young man whose very selfishness is causing your whole family, your livelihood? Who's hurting you? Who's hurting the people you love around you? What would your response be to a person's selfishness like that? I'll go first and say, I would not have very nice words about that person. I would not have a very nice attitude towards that person. Maybe you have been directly impacted by another person's selfishness. I know that's the experience and the story of people in this room, people watching online. Maybe a sibling or a spouse or a parent or employer. Their selfishness, their desire to live selfishly has had a direct impact on you. And when you see that person, when you look at them, you want nothing to do with them because all they've done is live selfishly. I've been there. Chances are you have too. And when I'm in that position, my natural response is to not want the best for that person. And that is a mild way of putting it. Now, if I'm this young, selfish Jewish boy making this request, there's another thing that'd be running through my mind. If I'm making this request to my father, I would be thinking to myself, oh man, I better not mess this up. Because in this day and age, there was something called the kazaza ceremony, if you want to put that slide up there. Say that out loud with me, kazaza ceremony. Sounds like something out of Lion King or something. Uh, But but if I'm the younger brother, I am thinking through this idea of this kazaza ceremony. What is this? Well, if a Jewish boy took his inheritance and lost all of his inheritance to Gentiles, that was the ultimate signal and sign of shame in that day and age. And so if he dared return home, a kazaza ceremony would be waiting for him. And what this is, is it would be the whole village coming together, getting big pots like clay pots, And putting burned corn in it, burned nuts in it, and essentially dancing around this this boy who lost his inheritance to Gentiles. They would dance around him in the ceremony of shame, hitting the pots and ultimately breaking the clay pots around him. And they would be screaming, so-and-so has been cut off from his people. Cut off, disowned, want nothing to do with them. This was a common practice. You can read about it in ancient Jewish scriptures So-and-so has been cut off from his people, and they would expel him, and they would want nothing to do with this hapless lad. Nothing. This is the kazaza ceremony. Now, if my life, I I just want you to think about this for a second. You have the kazaza ceremony. You have this younger brother. Put yourself in the position of another person living on this property. The kazaza ceremony makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? And we throw kazaza ceremonies all the time in our, in our culture today. We throw them all the time. Maybe your life has been torn apart by the selfishness of somebody else, and you have wanted to distance yourself from them, and you have wanted nothing to do with them because all they have done is live selfishly. Maybe you have a child who decade after decade, you poured into them, and you loved them, and you showed them the love of Jesus. And today, they want nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with God. And so in your mind, you want to just be cut off from them. It's a kazaza ceremony. Maybe in the church, you've walked through a painful season like a divorce or a diagnosis, and people from the church have been silent and distanced themselves from your pain. That is a form of a kazaza ceremony. You see, if we don't like somebody, we boycott them, we cancel them, we distance ourselves from them. We throw kazaza ceremonies all the time, not just in the church, but in our culture as a whole. And I got to tell you, if you want lost people to be worth as much to you as they are to God, kazaza ceremonies have no place in the church. That I told you so attitude, that superiority, it actually has no place in the church whatsoever. I was reading the other day, and there was um, this newspaper many, many years ago that asked people the simple question what is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? And they got answer after answer written back into this newspaper. So people would say things like, well, that political party is what's wrong with the world today. Or that you know, social movement is what's wrong with the world today. Or that person or that issue or that group of people. And it's just like finger pointing outward over and over and over again. But there was one response. That made the editors of this newspaper their jaws drop to the floor. One response that was so different than all the other responses that came into that newspaper. And the response simply said this. I am. I am what's wrong with the world today. Notice the difference in posture. It's not this. It's not pointing outwards. It's actually saying, I am part of what's broken in the world today. It's taking the fingers that are pointing outwards and pointing them inwards. I would argue that this is the heart of a person who has truly grasped how valuable lost people are to God. This is the heart of a person who has truly grasped the Jesus message in their heart. And so what happens next in this story? What happens with this younger son? Well, predictably, he spends his money on reckless living. We said that, and he loses all of his money to Gentiles. He loses all of his money. He does what what a kazaza what warrants a kazaza ceremony. He he actually does it to the letter. And to the point where we find him in this place where he is uh, working for a pig farmer. And we know it's a Gentile because Jewish people would not have farmed pigs like this. Okay, so he's, he's working for a pig farmer. He has nothing left And all he wants to do is eat the pig slop because he is so hungry and so desperate. And I got to tell you, I live next to a pig farm. (laughs) And I imagine some of you do too, or maybe you have them. They are no joke. They do not smell lovely. And the very last thing on the planet that I would want to eat is pig slop. And yet that's the desperate situation this young boy finds himself in. His selfishness has actually got him exactly to the place that he deserves. We can just be honest about that. His selfish living, his selfishness towards his community has gotten him to the exact place where he deserves. And he gets to a point where he is so desperate in this pig farm that he says, you know what? I'd rather go home and face the kazaza ceremony than this. My, my father's servants are treated better than this. Maybe, maybe there's just a small chance that my dad will let me come back as his servant. I'll I'll deal with the kazaza ceremony. I'll deal with that, but, but maybe he'll let me come back as a servant. And so what this guy does is he gets up, head held in shame, and he makes the long walk of shame home. And I want you to watch what happens with this dad in verse 20. And the younger son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion There's a ceremony when the son comes home, but it's not a kazazo ceremony. It's a homecoming party. It is a homecoming welcome. It is so different than what this son and what Jesus' Jewish listeners would have expected. This father's love is so reckless that he not only tears apart his own life for his son, who is selfish, but then he also throws this homecoming party when his son has a selfish motive to come home. This father is crazy. His father is crazy sounding to this Jewish audience. And the fact that he lifts up his garments to run to his son and expose his ankles, that's a whole nother layer of shame. I mean, this father over and over again is taking on shame for the sake of the selfish son. What is going on here? This this message would have just blown these people's minds. It was unheard of. There's not a hint of I told you so. Or rejection in the heart of this father when his son comes home how much is a lost person worth to God? Jesus is showing us in this story just how much a lost person is worth to God. And I think that's beautiful as a concept. But there's always something that has driven me crazy about this story, always something that I've never understood about this story in the way Jesus told it. And it honestly has kind of frustrated me when I read this story. You see, this story is the third version of three different stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15. This is the third version of this kind of one story he tells in three different ways. The first one is about 100 sheep. One goes wandering off, and the shepherd leaves the 99 in search of the one. The second story is about a woman who has 10 coins, loses one, and she ransacks her house until she finds the one coin. Both of those stories have one thing in common that this third story about the son is missing. Does anybody know what it is? There's a search and rescue operation in the first two, but there's no search and rescue in this story here. There's no search and rescue in the story of the prodigal son. In fact, it, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger. It's, it's a very unresolved, kind of frustrating ending because what happens is it just ends with this conversation between the father and the bitter son who is the bitter older son who is throwing kind of his own kazaza party when his brother comes home. Check it out in verse 25 here. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. I gotta ask you, what would your reaction be in this moment? I would be furious. Would you? Would you? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable response. And that's what it says here. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, it's like when a parent is mad at a child they call him your child to the spouse not like my child he's distancing himself this your son came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fat and calf for him and he said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this what does that say your brother not just my son your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What a frustrating end to this story because it's not resolved. Nobody pursued the younger son. Nobody ran after him and and performed a search and rescue operation. And this older brother, he's just sitting here in his own misery and grief. He's just as lost as the younger brother is. We're going to talk about how lost this older brother is next week saving it for then, but he's just as lost as his younger brother. And what this younger brother needed more than anything else was an older brother who was willing to go after him, who was willing to pursue him at great cost to himself in the younger brother's lostness. This younger brother needed an older brother who was willing to pursue him, an older brother who placed just as much worth on his younger brother as his father did. That's what this younger brother needed in his lostness. The younger brother needed a search and rescue operation. The younger brother needed an an older brother willing to go out and bring him home at his own expense. And by placing a flawed older brother in this story, what I believe Jesus is doing is he is on one hand agitating church people agitating the comfort of people who maybe are just way too comfortable. And at the same time, he is creating this deep longing, this yearning in his audience for the desire to be rescued and saved. Because what I believe Jesus is ultimately saying through this story is I am actually that older brother. That Jesus is himself placing himself in the place of the older brother the older brother who went to a distant land in search of those who are lost. We talked about this last week. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That Jesus is the older brother who gave up his own privilege, who gave up his own status for the sake of people who are lost. That Jesus' life, his very body was torn apart for the sake of younger brothers who had wandered off to faraway lands That Jesus didn't change the father's mind about younger brothers. Jesus just revealed the father's heart towards the younger brothers. That's the gospel. That's the heart of it. How much is a lost person worth to the father? Look no further than the life and ministry and work of Jesus to see that it's worth everything to the father. Lost people, younger brothers, they are worth everything to the father. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time together talking about how does Jesus pursue younger brothers? Like if we know younger brothers mean that much to the heart of God, how does Jesus actually pursue them? There's a, a Chinese Christian leader named Watchman Nee who uh, told this story many, many years ago. He was out with his friends and they were, they were swimming. And there was a group of five of them, and uh, none of them were super great swimmers. There was one, group in, one person in the group who was a lifeguard. He was really the only one who could swim, but the rest of them were pretty awful swimmers. And so they go out, and they're you know, swimming in the lake, enjoying themselves, having a really good time. And uh, eventually, inevitably, one of the guys in the group who was not a great swimmer finds himself too far out, and he starts to drown. He starts to sink. Of course, everybody turns their eyes to the one who is the lifeguard, the best swimmer in the group, and they say, Go save him. Go rescue him. And the lifeguard just kind of sits there. There's no urgency. There's no, like, pursuit of this, this kid who is drowning. And they're like, What are you doing? Why are you not going and rescuing him and saving him? They're, they're losing their patience, understandably. Like, Go get him! And so finally, after enough urging, this lifeguard rushes out, swims out, and he saves the person drowning out in the lake. And as he pulls him back in, all of the friends are frustrated, and they say, what took you so long? Why didn't you pursue him earlier? And what this lifeguard said is he said, if I would have gone out there while he was still flailing and still trying to save himself and still wrestling, he would have grabbed me and dragged me under the water right there with him. It was not until he realized there was no hope of saving himself. It was not until he gave up all trying, all striving to save himself, that I could go out there and actually rescue him. And that's the very heart of the gospel towards younger brothers. That it's, it's easy for us to think that we're closest to God when we no longer need his grace as much because we've gotten our performance buttoned up and everything's looking good. But that's not the illustration Jesus is using here. People with moral character can be just as lost as people who are out there kind of doing anything and everything that they want. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus is getting at here in this story is that I am here... As a rescuer. And Jesus is not gonna rescue younger brothers against their will. He loves them enough not to do that. But what he wants you to hear, if maybe you resonate with the younger brother, or maybe you know a younger brother in this place, what he wants you to hear is that he's already in it with you. And he's waiting to be invited all the way in it with you, that he sees your mess. And he sees the ways in which you might be drowning or, you know, falling under the surface where you might be lost, where you might need search and rescue. And here's what I want you to hear. If you are the younger brother or you know the younger brother, Jesus is not your parole officer. He's not the one that comes and just says, hey, make sure all your behavior's buttoned up and you're good to go. The the father doesn't say to the older son, hey, look, your younger brother was bad and now he's good. No, he says he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's home. That's the heart of the father. And so when it comes to lost people, younger brothers, Jesus isn't your parole officer just to make sure your behavior is all buttoned up. He is your lifeguard, your rescuer, the only one who who can actually save you out of the pit, out of the mess. It's not you. It's not me. It's not older brothers. It is Jesus alone that can save us out of the mess. And what repentance means is that you're still just treading water and you're trying to do it on your own and you're trying to save yourself. And what you don't realize is right behind you, there is a strong outstretched arm ready to pull you out of the water. And repentance means I'm going to turn from this and grab onto that hand and allow him to save me. That's what it means to repent. So if you have a younger brother in your life, or maybe you are that person, don't just talk to them about behavior. That's kind of a surface level issue. Talk to them about how Jesus offers very real heart level rescue from the ways in which we are drowning ourselves. I love how theologian Dane Ortland says this. He said, It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse in the honest acknowledgement that we never will. Ezra, can you put that slide up there so we can just read through that again? It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity. That we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse in honest acknowledgement that we never will. Who in your life needs rescue? Is it you? Is it someone you know? I want to create some space this morning for some honest confession about ways in which maybe we have acted superior towards people who have been lost, who are lost. Shouldn't surprise us when lost people act lost. And I think we need to stop being so angry about that and actually pursue them with the heart of the Father. One of the most important aspects of the Christian faith is repentance. It is a turn from sin. It is moving in a whole nother direction. But he begins with search and rescue. That's where it begins. And that's what I'm afraid the world is not seeing from the church these days. This desperation, no spirit of the older brother present, but rather this desperate pursuit of those who are lost. Other are ways you've judged. Been frustrated with, angry towards people who are drowning in your life. Other ways you've acted superior to them. As a church, we need to repent of those things. And then I would challenge you this week what step do you need to take towards someone who is drowning in your life this week? What step do you need to take towards someone who is drowning in their own sin? Maybe it's setting up a coffee date. Just going and grab breakfast or coffee with somebody and just talking about it. Maybe it's inviting them to Alpha. Not just trying to make shameless plug after shameless plug. I really do believe this could change some people's lives who are far from God. Maybe that's it. I mean, we're trying to make all of the excuses kind of go away and say, we are literally helping do this for you. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have all the Bible knowledge. That's not a prerequisite for being somebody who goes out and seeks lost people. But passion and pursue is. And so may we be the type of church that has the same heart of the father towards people who are far from God who has the same urgency to run after them, to pursue them with everything we've got. May we be the type of church who places the same value on people who are far from God that he does. May that be our story. I'd love to offer a prayer and then we're going to respond in worship this morning. God, I thank you that you are a God who pursues You are a God who doesn't just allow us to drown in our own lostness, but you actually offer us a life out of that, a rescue out of that. And God, for many of us, it takes coming to the very end of ourselves, realizing that we don't have what it takes to rescue ourselves out of this pit. And that's why you sent a lifeguard in. Romans, your word says that while we were still sinners, while we were still drowning in our mass, that's when you died to save us. That's when you gave your life for us. So God as a church... May we have that very same heart towards people who are lost. May we make bold moves this week towards lost people in our lives. May we acknowledge the ways in which we may be lost, God. May we confess those to you and may we ask you to step in and rescue us out of that. God, we can't do it ourselves, but you can. And you are ready and able and willing. And so God, may we surrender to that this morning.